You're listening to the Therapy for Women podcast with licensed therapists Amanda White, Fern Formel, and Gabby Salomone. Whether you're contemplating therapy for the first time, already in therapy, or reconsidering it, this podcast will empower you with tips, advice, and plenty of real talk so you can get the most out of your sessions. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Hi, guys. I'm happy to be here. Hello. hello. Welcome. It's a lovely... We record on Friday, so it's actually a sunny Friday here in Philadelphia. (laughs) It is. It's a beautiful day. I wish it would be a little warmer, but that's okay. And we're really excited, yeah, because we have Julia Johnston here, who is one of the therapists at Therapy for Women, who is based out of Ohio. So we're excited to chat with her. Yes. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. Hi. Welcome. Of course. Let's say, what's the uh, weather like in Ohio today? I'm very curious about the weather. Um, Very overcast, very chilly, a little bit of snow. (laughs) Snowing. Yeah, we. I got a fire going at the house. I'm just nice. huddled up today. Nice, yeah, nice. that sounds yeah. lovely. Yeah, it does. So, welcome, Julia. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do and the types of clients that you really focus on seeing and being an advocate for? Yeah, both in right. So, Julia, um, Julia works for us, but she also has a full time job. So. Tell us about both, too. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Julia Johnston. My um, licenses are in clinical mental health counseling and chemical dependency counseling. I have been a therapist for about seven years. I work at a community mental health agency in my area, um, and I started there as an intern. I was a counselor, and now I'm the director of outpatient services. And we primarily see, you know, typical mental health, anxiety, depression, bipolar, but we also provide medication-assisted treatment or MAT. So anyone who is appropriate for MAT has an opiate use disorder diagnosis or an alcohol use disorder diagnosis. So we get to see patients come in with that as well as other substance use disorders. And we work a lot with pregnant patients. So we do provide MAT for pregnant um, individuals. Yeah, so I've been there for about seven years. And then last spring, got connected with Therapy for Women. And I see patients for any mental health disorder, substance use, things like that. So for people who don't know, Julia, what is MAT? So MAT is medication-assisted treatment. And it is medication, either uh, methadone, buprenorphine, which could be Suboxone or Subutex, or Vivitrol or Sublocade, which is the injectable of Suboxone or buprenorphine. And it is used to help individuals combat withdrawal symptoms so that they're able to function and live a comfortable life with an opiate or an alcohol use disorder. So again, like when someone has an opiate use disorder, they, if they're not, you know, taking opiates, they are in withdrawal, which they're very sick. It's hard for them to go to work hold a job, take care of their families, things like that. So the medication is a nice supplement so that they don't have to feel that way. And do most of the patients that you see for MAT, is their goal to get off of it eventually? Is it 
quality of life. You know, I think there's different types of MAT, right? Yeah, absolutely. And every patient is different. You know, their needs are always considered. You know, the cost of being on medication-assisted treatment long-term, if they're taking it appropriately and they're sober, there's really no risk to reward benefit of them coming off of it. Now, obviously, it is a synthetic opioid, you know, so there are, you know, taking that long-term does have impacts overall on your body, not in the way that, you know, taking heroin or fentanyl does, but we work individually with each patient to meet their needs. So the goal when they first come in is obviously to stabilize them. You know, we don't want them to feel sick. And then as we work through recovery tools and, you know, developing coping skills and self-care plans, we're able to have that conversation with them about, do you feel comfortable starting a self-taper? And what does that look like? Because a self-taper on the medication will look different for every individual based on their their needs. Are they working? Are they taking care of a family? Things like that. There's also some, you know, when people are in active addiction, they generally don't take care of themselves. So when they do get stable, sometimes we find some health things that have been going on that might have been missed. And sometimes we start a taper on someone because, you know, they might have a heart condition that went untreated or something like that. So if it poses risk to their health, you know, we would we would do that taper. But I have some patients who have been on it for 10, 15 years and they're just like, maybe they're at like a low dose and they're just like, you know, this is habit. It's part of my life and I'm okay with it. And then I have other patients that come in that are like, nope, I'm ready to get off of it. I want to move on to the next chapter. When someone is on medication-assisted treatment, typically 18 months to two years is the time frame to get stable before we would have a conversation with them about starting a self-taper. I guess my big question would be is like, how often are they coming in for services? Yeah, that's a great question. And I can only speak on Ohio rules and regulations because that's where I'm licensed. But what we do is, you know, we have to work with the opioid treatment program regulations at the state and federal levels. So when someone is receiving methadone or suboxone and they're part of our opioid treatment program, they start out daily dosing at our clinic so that we have eyes on them because they're high risk, right? They're just coming off of substances. They might still be using until they get stabilized. With methadone, the regulations are that we can only increase someone 10 milligrams every week because that's safety. So they're building that up in their system. So, and then we have different guidelines, you know, certain amount of sober time, certain amount of compliance with the program allows them to earn what we call take-home medication so that they can maybe instead of dosing every day at the clinic, they're coming in once a week to the clinic and then maybe once every two weeks to the clinic. At the clinic I work with, the most amount of take-homes a patient will receive is 13. So that would be two weeks time. And we do that just, again, to have eyes on them, checking in. They meet with a doctor every 90 days for a follow-up appointment and they are required to meet with their counselor at least once a month. I guess my one thought was like, what if somebody wants to like, they're sober and they're doing well and they want to go to Europe for 10 days, right? How does that work? <laughs> oh yeah, that yes, absolutely. So if anybody needed take-home medication for a period of time, like a vacation, or maybe, you know, uh, sometimes we have people who have to go out of state for family things, we can request to the state and put in a request, hey, this person has 
this much sober time, they're compliant with treatment, they're asking for this amount of medication, and the state reviews that to let us know, you know, hey, this poses a risk for this person, or, you know, hey, this it's okay for us to prescribe that medication, you know, to give them that take home. Oh, so it's like a whole process. Yes. Yeah. There's a lot of red tape involved with all of this because it is, you know, a controlled substance. And we work with the DEA, we work with, you know, the state, you know, there's a lot of rules and regulations that have to be followed. The methadone and suboxone are like daily, is a daily medication that they take. The methadone is in liquid form and Suboxone is either in a tablet or a film strip. So the film strip goes under their tongue and gets absorbed through their saliva that way until it dissolves. Kind of like a Listerine strip is the best way to describe that. But the Sublocade and the uh, Vivitrol are a monthly injection. So those patients would only be coming to the clinic on a monthly basis to receive that medication. I worked at a rehab before therapy for women, right? Like the Vivitrol compared to a Suboxone or a Methadone is an injection that kind of helps prevent you from feeling the effects Mm -hmm. of feeling high or drunk if you do it versus, right, like Suboxone or Methadone. It doesn't give you a feeling of being high. How would you describe it? Yeah. So the methadone is a full antagonist. So that's fully activating your opioid receptor to reduce cravings and blocks the euphoric effect. It's highly rewarding to your receptors in your brain. And we can start methadone at any time. So if someone comes in to the clinic and they say, hey, I used this morning, we can start them on methadone. But with buprenorphine, that's a partial antagonist. So that's partially activating to the opioid receptor, reducing cravings and the euphoric effect. And it's less rewarding and it has a ceiling effect. So the best way to describe it is like with methadone. So like if you have a cup and you're using methadone, you can use methadone and your cup can overflow. But when you're taking buprenorphine, and this is like your receptor. So methadone, Receptor's getting filled, it can overflow your receptor, you're not feeling, you know, you're uh, not having cravings. With buprenorphine, you can fill up your cup, but when it hits the receptor, there's a cap on it. So you're not, it's not going to overflow. And someone must be in withdrawal to start buprenorphine. If they're not already in withdrawal and we give them buprenorphine, they're going to immediately go into withdrawal and feel really, really sick. A lot of times we get asked, you know, well, how do you decide if someone starts methadone or suboxone? And that's always a shared decision between the patient and the physician. We always take patient's voice and choice into account, but we think about those things too. You know, are they already in withdrawal? Did they use that day? And buprenorphine has a ceiling effect. So it's generally helpful to start someone on suboxone because if the suboxone's not working, it's easier to switch them over to methadone than take a patient on methadone and switch them to suboxone because methadone is a synthetic opioid. So if you are on suboxone and then we try to give you methadone, that's easy. But if you're on methadone and we want to switch you to suboxone, you'd be in precipitated withdrawal. You wouldn't feel great. It's a whole thing. (laughs) I think what's so cool, Julia, is like it's so refreshing to hear you talk about it because, like I said, I worked at a drug and alcohol rehab for quite a few years. That's where I got my license. Both, and I and I did my internship at one as well. And there was so much stigma. There was so much. We had flirted with introducing Matt at the end of my time there. I left before they like officially launched the program. But I mean, and I think you know, there's so much we could talk about with stigma and, and, you know, all of that. But I think it's so interesting because, right, 
it's something you probably encounter about how you're not like a real, you're not really in recovery if you're accepting Matt or you're not, you know, it's cheating and, and all of that. And what's your opinion on that? I mean, you got to do what you what works best for you to stay alive. I mean, this is like life-saving medication for people. And it really just hurts my heart when you hear a patient go into, you know, the 12-step community and, you know, genuinely trying to work a program of recovery in the best way that they can to physically be well. And they someone tells them that. And it really you know, impacts their self-esteem. It impacts, you know, their progress in wanting to go out to a meeting. And there's no shame in medication. I mean, we take medication for anxiety, depression. We take it for blood pressure. We take it for diabetes. You know, I mean, we we take things to help us feel better. And if for a period of time you have to take a medication to feel better, do it, you know, feel better until you're able to build those skills to do it without the medication, you know? It's sad that it deters people from things because of the stigma attached to it. Because I've seen it firsthand, like people have been saved by it, you know. And you can't, you can't be in recovery if you're not alive. Well, that's like that's harm reduction, right? One hundred and one, which I think is like what's so refreshing about your perspective is like MAT is true harm reduction, right? It's like not, it's not possible for everyone especially people don't understand how difficult it is to get off of heroin or like really intense opiates. They have no idea. So it's like, would we rather give them something supplementary either permanently or for a while while they stay alive? Or would we rather just say like, too bad for you? You know, that's it. Yeah. Because I think even Matt treatment from what my understanding is, is like for people that can't necessarily go to a 30, 60 day, 90 day rehab, right? Like it's just not like feasible for them or they they don't qualify for it. With my own even family, like we've run into trying to get treatment due to over prescribing of opiates and then realizing like, hey, this is like an addiction, but not because they want to be addicted, but because like they're just following their doctor's orders. And then it's like them trying to like increase their quality of living and not being able to get treatment because, oh, like you're not on heroin. Oh, you're only taking your medication that's prescribed. You're not buying me- like pills off the street from somebody. You don't qualify for this or you don't qualify for that. Finding some MAT programs that would take, you know, a family member was hard. And like explaining like, hey, like this is their situation. It looks probably a lot different than a lot of other patients that you're seeing. But from my experience on a personal level is like, finding a facility that will work with them and hear them and manage it in a way that's like useful for their lives. Yeah. And Gabby, I think that's such a great point to bring up is like the patients that I see that are on medication assisted treatment, it is people that have used heroin. It's people that have abused prescription drugs. It's people who were prescribed a medication from their doctor or their dentist and took it as prescribed. And you know, this is the impact that we're seeing from the opioid epidemic when prescribers were overprescribing is that now you have individuals who have lived these quote unquote normal lives, but have this incredible high risk, you know, opiate addiction that the only way sometimes that they can treat it is 
you know, by using a medication like, you know, methadone or suboxone. And there's also like, you know, medication-assisted treatment is not the first type of treatment that someone with an opiate use disorder is going to get. Like there's certain criteria a patient has to meet to get prescribed a medication. I think that's a common misconception too, is that, oh, I'm, I'm abusing, you know, a prescription or, you know, I, I, maybe I tried heroin once and now we're, you're on MAT. Like there are certain things that the physician has to see in order to start someone on this. Like a person who is getting prescribed medication assisted treatment is someone who has had significant treatment history, failed attempts at treatment. You know, it's not just someone who maybe they had, you know, an opiate use a couple times and they're starting this intense medication to treat it. It's a documented progression of continued failed attempts without it to support getting a prescription for it. And one thing I want to make note of too is that, you know, the American Society of Addiction Medicine and the American OBGYN group, their recommendation is for a pregnant woman to avoid detox during their pregnancy because it's unsafe. So, you know, a pregnant patient is going to come in and, and get started on that because it's just not safe for them to detox while they're pregnant. So, I mean, again, at that point, we're not just treating the mom, we're treating a, a baby, you know, so that's something to take note of too. I think this goes to goes to show, right, like that there's probably a real lack of education and understanding around Matt and like how you get started with it and the purpose of it, right? Like there's a lot of conversations in Philly, for example, about um, injection sites, right? And like reducing harm and whatnot. And there's just a lot of same thing, just not a ton of education. And I don't think a lot of conversation and, and whatnot, but this goes to that stigma conversation too, right? Like how do you, how do you break that stigma? How do you combat it? And I'm curious, Julia, like I'm not expecting you obviously to have all the answers for breaking stigma, but do you have any thoughts of like how we can combat stigma a little bit when it comes to to Matt? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think just, you know, what we're doing right now, like talking about it is a great way. You know, in the past, you know, couple of years, we've noticed that, you know, there's been a lot more conversations around mental health and normalizing taking a medication for your mental health, whether that's for depression, anxiety, you know, whatever. This is just another way to treat a mental health issue. And it happens to be, you know, for opiate use disorder, alcohol use disorder. So I think just us talking about it, getting out accurate knowledge, you know, real facts to people is important. And, you know, I think too, you know, we need to be respectful of like we talked about, you know, like there's this harm reduction and then there's abstinence and then there's all of, you know, this in between different providers are going to fall on that spectrum and that doesn't necessarily make it wrong to fall somewhere on that spectrum. But if you're the patient, having a good understanding of what your options are and finding a provider that's going to support you through what you choose to do for what's best for you and your family and your your life in recovery. Some people feel a certain type of way about MAT. It doesn't mean that you know they're wrong about it. It's just, do you have information about it? Are you making an informed decision about it? And from the patient's perspective, are they getting connected with a provider that will support them through that decision if that's the route that they choose to go? When I was working at the alcohol and drug rehab that I worked at, we struggled a lot with patients with chronic pain. 
So I think that, right, like especially someone who, right, was maybe taking medication for pain management and then opioids are the only thing that work for pain. And then all of a sudden, right, they become addicted to them and that's what's interfered. Like they have to live in pain. What is your, like, do you guys see more pain patients? Is this a good, like, is MIT, you know, specifically helpful for that? Yeah. So a common misconception that we see a lot is that MAT will not take the place of a pain management treatment. So if you're receiving an opiate for pain management, I don't want to say 100% certainty, but often you will not meet the criteria to be on medication-assisted treatment. I, I like that you brought up like pain management because obviously, you know, like we said, like I said earlier, the patients when they're using, they're not taking care of their bodies, so it's right. you know natural that there would be some pain, maybe some untreated physical health issues. The clinic that I work at, we provide chiropractic and acupuncture services as a form of pain management to mitigate those symptoms, so that they're not triggered to use an opiate. And, you know, you don't just have to be on mat to receive acupuncture or chiropractic services. Personally, I've tried acupuncture, you know, when I've had injury from working out and everything. It's awesome. It's like (laughs) completely life-changing. So those can be options, you know, for people if they don't want to take an opiate to relieve pain, they could go, you know, another route. Yeah. I think it's just so interesting because it's so hard. I really feel for those patients because it's just like, I just remember working with patients like that and it was like, they had to battle two things, right? They had to not only get into recovery, but then they had to figure out how to live with pain or how to manage pain in a different way. That's just, you know, it's hard enough getting sober, but then having to also have all of these pain issues. So, so hard. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I don't want to overstep, you know, I'm not a prescribing physician. So those decisions would always be left up to the the physician if they felt comfortable, you know, prescribing someone MAT, you know, with that. But it is really cool because we're seeing a lot more options for people with pain than just prescribing an opiate. Like I said, acupuncture and chiropractic services can be a great way to address pain in a way that's safe and like non-habit forming. What's your thoughts on marijuana as a relief source? That That's a curveball question. I was not asking <laughs> that today. <laughs> marijuana, I'm always kind of tiptoeing around because I have my personal thoughts about it, but then uh, I have to follow the rules and guidelines sent by mm-hmm. the state for someone being on medication-assisted treatment. Again, a lot of that depends on the clinic that someone's going to, if they're allowed to take marijuana. You know, a lot of that depends on the state that you live in. You know, are medical marijuana cards an option? Is it an option in Ohio? It is. Uh, yeah, a doctor can recommend it. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions too about a medical marijuana card because a physician doesn't prescribe the mm-hmm. card like a regular prescription. It's a recommendation. That's a, a lot different. You know, I'll get a patient yeah. that walks into the clinic and is like, I have a prescription for marijuana. And I'm like, no, you don't. You have a recommendation to get it, which is fine. You know, mm-hmm. that's yeah. what works for you. But I'm always a big advocate of patient voice and choice. And, you know, again, we're looking at the spectrum, right, of, you know, harm reduction and abstinence only. And we all fall on different areas of that spectrum. And if that is is working for someone and they are doing it in a safe way, then, I mean, I, 
I personally would say keep doing it if that's what, (laughs) you know, keeps you safe. But again, you know, everyone falls differently on that spectrum of, you know, harm reduction and abstinence only. As somebody that has researched a little bit about alternative methods for pain management and deals with chronic pain myself, that's why I was like, acupuncture, I love acupuncture. Hi. Like, it helps immensely for nerve pain. I have had for six years now neuropathy in my hands and feet that, you know, waxes and wanes depending on stress and my activity level. But (laughs) acupuncture, I swear, is like what got me like to a state where it's like a not a constant, which it was at one point in my life. So yeah, like, you know, thinking about some of these things and like understanding like a little bit about addiction and opioids and treatments, like alternative treatments, right? Like it's, it's hard and there's like a lot of options, but my personal opinion here in the United States is that we are regulated a lot to what the FDA approves. So where there might be alternative medication assisted treatment or, you know, to help with withdrawal, like Ibogaine or psilocybin or something like that, that people are going to other countries for at this point, knowing somebody that has done Ibogaine and gotten sober off of heroin and is thriving versus like going in and out of rehabs. Like, I don't know, like that's probably why I don't do addiction treatment because it gets a little too close to them. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I think that really just speaks to how recovery is so individualized. So when you're a therapist working with someone with a disease of addiction, you're constantly looking at what is best for that individual. What someone's recovery looks like for one person, someone else's recovery could look completely different. And again, being on that spectrum, you know, does that person want to be abstinent only? Do they, you know, want to partake in other substances, but be opiate free? I mean, there is so much there that is for me as as a counselor working with people in addiction, those are the sessions I I really enjoy is getting into that nitty gritty, you know, what's going to work best for you to keep you safe, regardless of like what they choose to do. Like safety is always the biggest thing. So that's, that's why I like being an addiction therapist, you know, and everyone's different. We all have our different niches. And I think that's what's so interesting about when you look at across the board, how like addiction often is treated compared to other things, because almost every other type of, you know, whether depression, OCD, eating disorders, you know, relationships were so about everyone's different. Every relationship is different. Every person's life is different. Different things work for everyone. But then somehow, like, this is my personal, like, soapbox that I can get on, right, is when it comes to addiction, it's like, no, everyone's the same. Everyone must be, at least, like, the old school way, right, is, like, everyone must be abstinence. Abstinence is the only way. And it's so counterproductive to everything else we're taught and teach as therapists. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like, manualized treatment does not work for everyone. As much as insurance companies get upset about that. Which could be a whole other episode. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I I think like you're right. Like it's a whole nother like can of worms of like everybody's different and everybody's treatment looks different. And, you know, the country that we live in, they've demonized like so many different drugs so long Mm -hmm. that could be helping. 
Yeah. And I, I think it's just, you know, as a as a patient coming into treatment, be your biggest advocate, you know, like ask questions, do your research. And you've tried, you know, an outpatient for so long and you're still struggling with addiction. You know, there's so many different options that are available to patients now and being able to find a therapist and, and a doctor that you feel comfortable with is so important because, you know, if you, if there are underlying health issues that aren't being managed, those can be triggers for relapse. Those can be triggers for playing your own doctor, you know, and, and taking different things. So I just would really emphasize with patients, if, if you are struggling with the disease of addiction or you think that you are, follow up with a medical provider that you trust and follow up with a counselor that you trust and figure out what is the best plan for you so that, again, you're staying safe and living a happy, healthy life. And like MAT is just one tool. Yeah, it's not the end all be all. You know, I've had patients who've tried MAT and it wasn't for them and they've been able to get sober in other ways. That's the main thing, right? It doesn't really matter how you get there. It just matters that you're sober and you're safe and you're healthy. Are you looking for some skills on how to improve your mental health? Therapy for Women has some great workshops and groups coming up this spring that I'd love to tell you about. First up, starting April 5th, we have a four-week DBT skills group led by Kat Hilton. DBT is a phenomenal resource to help you learn how to regulate your emotions, improve your relationships, and also develop healthy ways of coping. So it's going to be four sessions, totally virtual. You can take this workshop no matter where you live in the country, and it'll be $175 for the set of four classes. We're keeping this small, so you'll have a lot of individual attention, so be sure to sign up if you're interested in it. The other one coming up on Thursday, April 13th is going to be an anxiety and insomnia workshop. So if you are someone who struggles with insomnia, anxiety, your sleep hygiene, you're not going to want to miss this workshop. It's only $20. Again, it's totally virtual, so you can participate from anywhere in the world. And finally, Melanie is going to be doing the Patriarchy's Impact on Pleasure, also going to be a $20 virtual workshop coming up on Thursday, May 25th. She's going to be talking about how the patriarchy targets women and how it impacts our ability to feel pleasure and joy in sex. So if you're interested in any of these workshops, visit therapyforwomencenter.com slash events. Now back to the show. Julie, I was thinking as we were talking about like you know, kind of standardized treatment and stigma and all of that, do you ever work with like families of your clients too? We do offer family programming. I've had patients, especially because the stick, you know, there is the stigma with MAT that they've requested a family member come into session to receive education about it. So we definitely try to work with families to get them to understand what the medication's for, why someone's taking it, how to safely store it at your house, because that's a big thing too. Is you know you want to make sure that you know this is a controlled substance, so it needs to be stored safely. So we definitely will give their families that's the support that they need to support their loved one through their, their recovery process. Absolutely. It was, I mean, this is no surprise to anyone on this podcast, but of course my perspective is like family relationships, <laughs> this and that. But I, that's what I was thinking, right? Like how it is to sit there with families and 
and I'm sure a family member, like similar Lady Gabby, I have family friend background. So this is like a more close to home subject. <laughs> so I've seen friends and family where they're like upset and they don't understand and they don't trust the treatment and stuff like that. And I'm just curious as a therapist, how do you how do you sit with that, right? And how do you like help them not get comfortable because that's not our job, but just help them communicate with their family members that are maybe giving them a hard time for this treatment. I just, I can imagine that that would be hard as a therapist. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that stigma is always there. So just providing them with as much education as possible, but really working with that patient to understand that like, if this is their recovery path, like being confident in that being their recovery path. People can have opinions, you know, about any type of medication, not just MAT, just getting them to build that self-confidence that like, it doesn't matter what, you know, my grandma says about my medication. I need to take this because it keeps me safe and it keeps me healthy and it keeps me off of fentanyl and heroin. In my area, the drug screens are all fentanyl. I mean, it's it's really sad when it, it's not even heroin anymore. It's just fentanyl. And like I said earlier, like this is a medic, these are medications that can save someone's life. And that needs to be, if that's the, you know, if that, if you pick up one thing today, you know, if the listeners pick up one thing that, you know, instead of stigmatizing a medication, like if that's your loved one and it's keeping them alive, like encourage it, you know, ask questions, go to them to appointments because the worst thing someone can do if their loved one is in recovery is shame them, (laughs) you know? I mean, that really affects patients. There's already so much shame, right? That was one thing that was so interesting to me that I used to have to talk to family members about, and it was shocking that I had to say this, but family members would be like, well, I need to make sure they know how bad this is. Like, I need to really like twist the knife to make sure. And I would be like, you have, no, no, no. They do that to themselves all day, every day. They know how bad it you, is. They know how, yeah. They don't need you pouring your shame on top of their own. But yeah, people think that it's helpful. They think like, you know, tough love and all of that stuff. We're not saying don't be honest, right, with your family members. That's where sometimes I think what Fern was talking about is also family members getting support, maybe their own therapist, their own space to process it. I used to have to say to a lot of times like, you are entitled to feel this way, but this is like not the appropriate place <laughs> to be, you know, like the patient is not the one to support you in being mad at them. Like you need to process that separately. Yeah. And I think that's just addiction it impacts the entire family system. So getting that patient and that family to recognize that so that, you know, Amanda, like you were saying, we can get them the supportive services they need to address it as a family systems issue, not just we're going to shame this person because they they have it. And like even we said earlier, I mean, some of these individuals with these addiction disorders didn't, nobody wakes up and wants to be addicted to an illicit substance. But a lot of these people were taking pain medication as prescribed, as directed, their doctors, their nurses, their, you know, functioning people in society that just their brain just decided, nope, it's not working. <laughs> you're you're going to become addicted and 
shaming a, a patient to feel that way. They feel that every day of their lives. They're carrying that with them. So we do always promote family therapy. We do always promote individualized therapy for those family members. And you just hope that they're willing and accepting to, to take it, right? So they can support their loved one through that. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say, Julia, so I know you had kind of said this before, but what are the, right, if someone's listening to this and obviously therapy for women does not provide MAT therapy, we're not qualified or licensed to do that. We're not an addiction facility. So obviously if you're in Ohio, like we'll put it in the show notes where Julia works, you can go see her. (laughs) But I think, I think it might be interesting to tell listeners, what are the, you were kind of saying, what are some of the criteria that someone may be a good fit for MAT or they may benefit from it? Yeah. So an opiate use disorder or an alcohol use disorder, first and foremost. But like I was saying, multiple failed treatment attempts in an outpatient setting. Maybe they've gone to detox a couple times. They've gone to residential a couple times. That wasn't working. And then, you know, it would be appropriate for them maybe to start MAT. And again, I'm not a prescribing physician. I'm a licensed clinical mental health counselor. But when we do an intake on someone, we're documenting heavily the progression of use, the substances that they're using, how they're using it is important too. You know, an IV drug user is going to be much more high risk than anything else. Um, are they pregnant and using opiates? So, the, you know, we look at those high risk factors and then I would take that assessment to the physician I work with. We would review the chart together and then he would ultimately make the decision about if someone's starting any medication. So I think like especially high risk factors, pregnancy, IV drug use, daily drug use, failed treatment attempts. What about like length of time, how long they've been using? Does that factor? Yes. Yeah. So that would go into like the failed treatment attempts. So like if, you know, if you've only been using for opiates for six months, you're, you're, you don't meet criteria. But if you're using for, typically we look at like, a year or more. But again, it depends on the frequency, the amount, how they're taking it, things like that. That's really interesting. So like going off that six-month mark, like if someone has been using for six months and they don't meet that criteria, what do they do? So we would look at the ASAM levels of care, right? So, you know, if someone has been using opiates for six months and they come in and they're like, hey, I really need help. Well, okay, have you tried detox? you know, let's start there. Like, you know, or, okay, let's, you know, and we like to start people out in the least restricted level of care, you know, to see if that works before we're uprooting their life. So is going to group and doing an intensive outpatient program and going to see a counselor, is that enough to get you to stop using opiates or any illicit substance if you've only been using for six months? And we're constantly, you know, as therapists, we constantly assess, right? When they come into session, is this the appropriate level of care? What's going on? How much? How often are they using? And then continuing to refer from that point. So if that that individual comes in and it's six months and we put them in an outpatient setting, a month or two goes by, there's no change or the use has increased, we're going to refer to detox. Okay, you've completed detox. Now is the outpatient setting appropriate? Check in in a couple months. No, is it not? Okay, well then let's send you to residential. Let's give you that more of that foundation re- of recovery. So th- those are your options. If you know someone doesn't meet the criteria, um, they'd mm-hmm. be referred to whatever level of care would be appropriate at that point. 
Yeah, and I think a lot of people don't. I know this just from my background, but like Julia obviously knows this. You have to like medically meet Mm -hmm. a certain level of care to be admitted to detox or residential. Like anything that's overnight, you have to Mm-hmm. You have to meet a they, – they have to show that there's a medical risk mm-hmm. for you continuing to live in your home. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that is a common misconception for patients also. Like when they come in, you know, especially alcohol use, that's been more of a telehealth conversation mm-hmm. lately, which is great. But at a certain point, if someone's drinking alcohol daily, is outpatient telehealth appropriate? No. <laughs> you yeah, need right. more intensive – services and you know again safety is always the biggest issue so you're always going to refer to the level of care that keeps them safe for again how much how often they're using substances and then alcohol and benzos those are the only two substances someone could die from when they're withdrawing from them so if someone's using alcohol or benzos that's a quick referral to detox because again safety is the biggest concern yeah and i think a lot of people don't don't know that like a lot of people think that um detoxing from heroin or iv drug use is more dangerous and yeah exactly what you said it's like alcohol yeah. and <laughs> benzos are actually the most dangerous, which is crazy because they're also like the most accepted probably (laughs) in our society and easy to get. (laughs) Exactly. Easy to get. You know, I mean, when you think about this sober curious movement movement that's been Mm -hmm. happening and the increased conversations I've had with patients who bring up being sober curious, and then you start talking to them and you're like, hey, you're not just sober curious, like this is dangerous, you know, sometimes like, so that perspective has been super helpful now that people are getting the momentum to not want to drink alcohol. We're realizing, hey, maybe a lot more people are suffering from an alcohol use disorder than we really think. And again, safety, you know, that withdrawal is way more dangerous than withdrawing from heroin is. I mean, heroin, you're going to feel like crap, but with, you know, I mean, you don't want someone withdrawing from alcohol or benzos at their home thinking they can get through it and something terrible happens. So, Mm -hmm. Julie, it sounds like you're doing – I mean, it sounds like the whole program, whatever (laughs) whatever the word would be, like – I mean, it sounds like you're doing amazing things. It sounds like this is needed probably everywhere. I hope that Matt becomes – continues to be something that is like more accessible and, you know, just let more people participate in it because it sounds like it's – something that can really, really help people who are struggling, you know, with addiction. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, I can only speak on like the rules of Ohio because that's, you know, where I'm licensed and that's where, you know, I I work with MAT patients. So I would imagine the rules across states, you know, are a lot different. So again, making sure if, if you're out there and you're struggling with opiate use, you know, make sure you're asking your physician, talking to your counselor about it. Um, to find out what's best for you. There was a really great documentary on Hulu with, um, oh, I can't remember it, but it talks about the opioid epidemic. It was um, Dope Sick. Is that what you're talking about? Yes, Dope Sick. Yes. Yeah, it was like a, it was a documentary, but it was like with actors and stuff. It was phenomenal. Yeah, love that from an expert in medication-assisted treatment and addiction counseling. While not everything in that show was accurate, that is a great, great documentary series to watch. 
they talk about medication assisted treatment the one character goes to a clinic you know i mean the information about the opioid epidemic and the fda all that i mean great resource for people i thought they did such a good job too in just like really building compassion for like you said one of the characters does take Mm-hmm. you know, MAT and it like mm-hmm. saves his life. And it, mm-hmm. I think it did a really good job of just showing how it's not that people don't want to be sober. It's that this is so difficult sometimes mm-hmm. that we, people need another tool. Yeah. And the, the compassion of seeing the addiction form in those characters, I mean, I think just really shows people that this could really happen to anyone. You know, I mean, this is addiction is a disease and it can happen to anyone. And I I really appreciated that, that they spent the time to develop that in that show. The two doctors I work with, they both watched the series and they said the same thing that, you know, there's a couple things in there that's not super accurate, but in terms of creating a a picture of what happened and a picture of medication assisted treatment, that is a great resource. That's awesome. So yeah, we'll link that in the show notes. It's called Dope Sick. It won like an Emmy, I think a year ago or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's so good. There's also, I mean, a lot of the show is getting into Purdue Pharma and, you know, which was a huge part of the opioid crisis. And I think it's, there's a book also as well that maybe the series is based on too. I think you're right. Yeah, and um, if anyone likes to read Sam Quinones' Dreamland, is a great, um, great book. Just building an understanding of opiate addiction, how it started, the movement of illicit substances across the borders. Um, he's a reporter. I've had the pleasure of meeting him a couple times at different conferences. Super great guy. The book is is really educational. It's it does read like a textbook. So maybe you're not reading, you know, a lot of it at a time, but just to read a couple pages and just get familiar with it could be a a great resource for people as well. And I know we've talked a lot about like opiate use today with like addiction, but Beautiful Boy is actually a really, really great resource. So sad. So sad. Such a sad story. But The information in that book about treating methamphetamine Mm. use is is so incredibly accurate. So I like that book because it reads like a story and then sprinkled in are these pockets of education about methamphetamine use and the treatment and all that. So I think that's a great resource for individuals as well. I know we focused a lot on opiate use disorder and alcohol today because we talked about medication-assisted treatment, but... Beautiful Boy is a great resource. And I think especially if someone's struggling with use, reading that, it's not it was not like super triggering to me. Like there was not things yeah. in it that I was like, wow, this is like triggering. Like the son wrote a book, Tweak, about his mm. experience. That's a great book. But if you're struggling with substance use, it it could read very triggering, yeah. you know, by the situations. But yeah, I think that's a good thing in general, like to remind people sometimes like books are amazing, but memoirs that are actively chronicling someone's addiction if you're trying to get sober, they're not a great idea to read while you're trying to get sober. Yeah. And I, you know, I mean, triggers are so specific to people. So like you never really know what's going to trigger someone, but when it comes to sharing certain details, yeah, like there were some things I'm like, no, I got to watch out. Yeah. yeah. We don't need a play by play. Yeah. <laughs> In Philadelphia, right, we have Kensington, which is, you know, the, what did they refer to it a couple of years ago as the Walmart 
um, of like heroin, like, yeah, like the Walmart of heroin, like is Kensington and like has been for a while. And, you know, the open air drug market there is just wild. And then, you know, so from our point, like if we have that, and then, you know, I know Ohio and, you know, the middle of the country has really suffered with opiate addictions and heroin addictions. And it's just really interesting, you know, how it spreads everywhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's why, yeah, I think it highlights, you know, Julia, just how important that work is destigmatizing. You never know when someone is going to be ready to be sober. And that's where I think having resources available, right, is so helpful. And it's people think that having resources available can make people use more. And that's like not what research proves. You know, it, it shows that the more resources you have, the more like, like you've said, Julia, like no one wants people who are in their addiction do not want to be in their addiction, but they don't think they have a way out and they don't think they have a choice. So they continue. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Julia, you said something earlier that was like, no one wakes up and like wants to be addicted to something like anything that's something super important to keep in mind whether you are someone who is actively like fighting an addiction right or like in an addiction or you are the loved one of someone who's experiencing addiction like no one is waking up being like this is how I want to spend my day to day yeah no one wants to spend their their life doing that you know and when you see people I mean I work in a community uh, mental health agency where a lot of our patients are low income uh, they're on Medicaid they don't want they don't want that they don't want to be struggling like that so to have these conversations and have people open to learning about these things hopefully inspires people to like follow up and get treatment and help because there are so many, agencies out there. I mean, 20 years ago, it was hard to find a methadone clinic. You know, it was very difficult and it was incredibly stigmatized. And now through education and through learning and research, you know, we see that this can work for people. And now it's much more accessible to people. And we've come a little bit of a way (laughs) in breaking the stigma. You know, we obviously have a lot lot more to go. But I think having these opportunities to share about it and I've seen firsthand it change people's lives. I mean, I've had patients I've had on it. Like I said, I've worked at the agency I'm at for um, over seven years. I've seen patients come in, start it, work a program of recovery, decide to taper, taper off. They see me for outpatient now. You know, I mean, they're still, they're living, breathing support on why this can be helpful and save someone's life. So it's been a pleasure to get to talk to you guys about this today. I'm so passionate about it. And if anyone has questions, ask. Let me know if you need help in Ohio finding a clinic. I'm happy to help someone through that process and connect them to those resources in their area. You know, I, I'm in Northeast Ohio, but due to situations and circumstance, we refer across the state of Ohio. So I am familiar with clinics in other areas of Ohio as well. So if if there are listeners out there that need that support, like please reach out. I'm happy to walk you through that. Awesome. Yeah. And we'll link Julia's Instagram and, you know, you can reach out, like we can connect you to her also if you reach out to us through Therapy for Women Center. But thank you so much, Julia, for sharing your time and knowledge with us today. Yeah. Thank you for letting us pick your brain with all of our questions.
Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes these conversations are so great, but then people are left with more questions afterwards when they reflect. So I love that. I could talk about my job all day long. I love it so much. So this has been so much fun. Yeah. We'll, we'll just have to have you on for another episode. That's what that means. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> of yes. course. So submit your questions and we'll bring yeah. Julia back. I love that. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you, Julia. Thank you everyone for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and we'll talk to you next time. Have a great day, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Therapy for Women podcast. To suggest a topic, submit a question, or find a qualified therapist, visit therapyforwomencenter.com.